Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Support for this episode is brought to you by this summer's must-read novel, Harry's Trees by John Cohen. After the loss of his wife, Harry Crane plans to lose himself in the remote woods of Pennsylvania's endless mountains. But fate intervenes in the form of a wise old librarian who sets in motion a series of unlikely events that lead Harry back into the light. This uplifting story is a reminder of the enduring presence of goodness in the world, even when it seems dark. Discover the magic of Harry's Trees today, download the audiobook, or pick up a copy wherever books are sold. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 266. We're recording on Thursday, June 21st. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I am here with my special guest, Josh Christie, while Jeff is out on vacation, and we are coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello, Josh. Hey, Rebecca. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, let's tell the people who you are, shall we? Tell the people who I am. Um, So, like, relevant to this, I feel like, is the fact that Rebecca and I hosted a podcast together for years and years called the Book Rages Podcast, Mm -hmm. um, back in when there were book bloggers and we were book bloggers. Oh, we're dating ourselves now. Um, But I'm also the co-owner of an independent bookstore in Portland, Maine called Print a Bookstore that we opened in November of 2016. Yeah, so uh, OG Book Riot fans might recognize us together from Bookrageous and uh, annotated listeners will recognize you from the episode of Annotated about why indie bookstores actually have not failed in the age of That's Amazon. right. We haven't. We're still around and, and um, flourishing, actually. Yeah. And so we're going to do a little bit of news this week, but since we have different hosts, we thought we would have a little fun. And by fun, I mean, I'm going to put you in the hot seat. Uh, So we're just going to talk about some bookstore stuff, some publishing stuff. Uh, But first, I'm going to tell you about our first sponsor. How does that sound? Great. Good. Sometimes on all the books, I ask Liberty if she wants to hear about a sponsor and she says no. And then I don't know what to do. Oh, no, I am here for (laughs) commerce. So sign me up. Says the business owner. All right. Our first sponsor this week is Me, Myself and Them by Dan Mooney. Struggling to cope with a tragic loss, Dennis has, for the past seven years, learned to live a little bit differently. Both his friends, Ollie and Frank, are used to his strict routines, like ironing his socks and lighting his fireplace every Sunday afternoon, even in the summer. Then Rebecca returns to town. Rebecca is Dennis's enigmatic ex-girlfriend and is sunshine personified. Shocked to meet the new Dennis and unable to manage even the most basic social interactions, or the new Dennis who is unable to manage even the most basic social interactions. Rebecca becomes determined to bring back the funny, charismatic guy she knew. It's not long before Rebecca's carefree charm threatens to shatter the world Dennis has created for himself. This is a heartbreaking, funny debut novel about one man's struggles with mental illness. It has an eye-opening exploration of the healing power of human connection. If you were into Silver Linings Playbook or Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine, this is for you. You can get more information from Book Clubbish, that's bookclubbish.com or click a link in the show notes. And again, that is Me, Myself, and Them by Dan Mooney. All right, Josh, 
All right. All right. So (laughs) this was a thing that Jeff and I had seen not too long ago. I think maybe somewhere in Europe where an independent bookstore was letting a woman like it was this woman's 64th birthday wish or something like this to get to spend the night in her favorite bookstore. And they had set up what looked like a bedroom set from a furniture showroom. And she was getting to have a sleepover all by herself in her favorite bookstore. And we were kind of wondering about how that might work. But then this week in Valdosta, Georgia, um, the city of Valdosta staff have noted that there's not much lodging downtown. I have been through Valdosta, Georgia. I can tell you that it's small. Um, There is a tiny bookstore that is going to start renting out space in the bookstore, bedrooms being added onto the bookstore on Airbnb. And I think this sounds like fun. Like this is one of those things that uh, that readers might love to do. But I wonder from the bookstore perspective, like is this an insurance nightmare? <laughs> I think so. Looking at the story about this Georgia bookstore, I'm not sure because I don't know how connected they are to the actual retail space. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds a lot like – so there's a, a bookstore in Denver called Book Bar. Uh, and above it, they have an Airbnb space called Book Bed, oh. which is – um, Airbnb space, you can rent the room. It's a nice looking one bedroom and you get like a discount at the bookstore and stuff like that, but you aren't actually going in and out, which I, I do get would be like, I love being in my bookstore after it's closed for the day. I don't know the idea of like having someone that's renting a room <laughs> being in there, hanging out or just like, you know, some sleeping bags on the floor a little. Yeah. Time. I mean, that's a request we've had before, so I totally get it. Um, And it is really cool, something I've been selling books for like 15 years and being in the store after the doors are locked and some of the lights are off is still like the coolest thing. Um, It still feels great. And I know that being in a bookstore after it's closed is something that people fantasize about, which I totally get. Yeah. I Well, since the first time that I got to visit your store was after hours, I can confirm that is a magical feeling. I think it's those like goosebumps that readers get of like, what if I really could read all of these? Yes. If I stayed long enough, I could read them all. Um, But if you are near Valdosta, Georgia, or you're going to be passing through, I guess now you can explore this opportunity to stay near a bookstore. I had, I had heard about book bar, but I didn't know they were doing book bed and I would like to applaud them on good branding. Yes. It's very solid, like universally across their brand. It looks very good. Um, and it does remind me of, there's this great story from a couple of years ago that keeps popping up on my radar, um, about a bookstore called open book, which is in Wake town, Scotland, Hmm. which is a bookstore that you can Airbnb and you're sleeping above it, but you're also volunteering to run the bookstore while you're there. So that seems like the fantasy that readers have are really, really put into place. Oh my, but how could that even work? <laughs> I just, it's a, I think like, I'm, I'm not sure on the story, but I think it's like a mostly used bookstore. So mm-hmm. some of the problems around inventory aren't as, as big of a worry as they <laughs> would be for me if people were renting space in my bookstore. I, would, um, I wonder how much the reality and the, uh, the reality matches or doesn't match the fantasy of it for the folks who do that. Like, I know that one thing that we've talked about and one thing, probably booksellers everywhere just live in is hearing customers say like, Oh, I would love to run a bookstore. It must be so great to sit Mm -hmm. around reading all day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and that's not the gig. Not so much. No, I I get to read after work in the same way that everyone else does. (laughs) 
Um, while we're talking about bookstore stuff, I'm just going to ask you bookseller questions, I guess, Please. is what's going to happen. It's my show and I'm in charge. So here we go. Um, we talked offline, maybe it was when I was interviewing you for Annotated, about the process of setting up inventory for a store that's opening. And I was like, how do you decide what to put in there? Like, do you just make a list of your favorite books and your co-owner, Emily makes a list of her favorite books and then you guys put them on the shelves. How does that work? Um, and I think the uh, kinds of book nerd that listen to this show would be really interested in like the very satisfyingly nerdy process that you explained to me. Oh God. Yeah. It's, um, so that's where you start. Um, at least for us, because we wanted the bookstore to reflect our community and our personalities. It's like, what are our favorite books that we want to make sure in the store? Um, and if you want to get really into like nitty gritty and stats and bookseller stuff. So our store is about um, 2,500 square feet. So like small to medium sized independent bookstore, which means that we can fit about, I think, like 20,000 titles is what we have in stock or 20,000 physical books at Ooh. least. Um, and when you, we go through our favorites that we can remember and keep adding <laughs> to those lists, but that's still a small fraction of it. Um, so then we worked with sales reps from publishers largely to come up with lists of best selling titles and titles that were important in our region and new releases and trying to figure out how to fill those sections a little bit better. Um, it was a little more of an involved process for us, I think, than the typical bookstore because Emily and I, since the day we started planning the store, knew we didn't want to be apolitical. We wanted to have a point of view and we are both, you know, progressive and thought that the stock should reflect that. And that's true of our community as well. Um, and also kind of even more importantly, we wanted to create a bookstore that had a platform for authors that weren't, you know, dead white guys or living white guys, not just <laughs> hard white guys, to get the basically. dead white guys booked. Yeah. Um, so we wanted to have a store that had those voices on the shelves. And if you're just looking at what marketing budgets are behind or looking at what bestsellers are, which is largely determined as much as we'd like to think we're all independent thinkers, largely determined by what energy is put behind marketing and stuff like that. We had to dig a little bit deeper into the lists in terms of finding what we wanted to have on our shelves. And isn't there some magical formula about how many feet of shelf space you have? Yes. Yeah. God, I can't remember what the formula was, but we were, we, when we were planning the store, we planned out how big we wanted each section to be, which was somewhat based on like general bookstore sales history and somewhat based on our tastes. So like fiction is going to be a really big section at any independent bookstore. We have eight case, eight wall cases of fiction, if I'm not mistaken, um, something like family planning and pregnancy or, and, um, reference our smaller sections at our store um i'm i've become in the last couple of years a big fan of poetry so it's like a bigger than average poetry section portland is a big food town so a really big cookbook section um and once we had fixtured the store so once we knew how many bookshelves we've had in each section we knew how many feet there were for each shelf and then we could do a formula and figure out how many books would fit on each of those shelves um, comfortably. <laughs> All my dopamine is firing right now. <laughs> Excellent. Ex I actually had to do it today because we're building a breakout from our fiction section, a uh, dedicated romance section. Woo -woo! And I measured, yeah, it's something I'm really excited to do for the store. And like you and Amanda and other people at Book Riot have been such good resources for figuring out what books to carry, which is great because it's something that we talked about this on Book Rage just back in the day, like something I've dabbled in reading, but certainly I am happy to 
speak to the experts and let them <laughs> tell me what to bring in. Oh, this is uh, a nice spot for me to do an organic plug for if you read romance and you don't know that Book Riot has a romance podcast. We have one. It's called When in Romance, and it is excellent. So romance listeners, check that out. And I'll plug for you. You also have an excellent romance newsletter. Woo, that one's called Kissing Books. Um, so yeah, we've got um, in that section, I think, room for 72 books to start out with. <laughs> so that's what I was working <laughs> on today. That seems like a, a good place that you could sort of have arguments with the passionate readers when you're like, we of the world of romance, we can start with 72. Um, yeah, so like not to take us totally off, off oh, topic. By here, all means. Like something we've talked about a lot in the store and with the media around the store in the last half a year has been um, authors accused of um, sexual assault mm. and stuff like that and what we want to do with their books. Um, and for us, at least, the answer is remove them from our shelves. We still want to, you know, we're not removing them from our website. They're still available, but we don't want to create a physical platform for for authors that have committed sexual assault. Um, and it's part of talking about that with people and why that isn't censorship, which is, you know, I've been called a, mm -hmm. a Nazi and other things more time in the last <laughs> ever before in my life. Are you interested in writing for Book Riot? <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard that your columnists are used to that. So I feel like I was jumped into this special community. Um, same as when I got divorced, like you feel like you're getting jumped into this group of people you didn't know existed that all had a similar experience. And they've all read Ada Calhoun's book. <laughs> right, exactly. So anyway, like I did some math and looking at what books are published every year, what books are in print, um, what books are available to booksellers. If we stock book, books we stock in our store, we can only fit one hundredth of one percent of all, of all the books that are available to us. So we have to make decisions and we make decisions on everything like, you know, is the cover good or is the price point book good? What's the track record for the editor? How is the books, you know, the prior books by this author done? And it's just a consideration we make along with those considerations when we're looking at what authors and books to bring into the store. It's a lot of math to do. I know. See, you're not sitting in the store reading. You're looking at spreadsheets, which <laughs> might make the job more appealing to some people. Yeah, I was saying, well, we, we all know here on this show how I feel about spreadsheets. <laughs> so. You want a job? <laughs> sure. Um, I'll come work at print with spreadsheets for a while, and you come sell people T-shirts on the internet and host – well, you already know how to host a podcast, yeah. so it's yeah, cool. Yeah, but well – We'll get you a sleeping bag and then you can do yes. that in the bookstore overnight thing. I just need like a GoPro helmet for running around the bookstore and or like a time lapse situation. But it would be like that episode of The Office when people like when is it Dwight? No, it's Jim pulling pranks on people. And it, you would come back and it would be like all of the books are upside down and the sections are backwards. And <laughs> yeah, I'm not to be trusted alone in the bookstore, but it would be fun. We could do a work exchange between Book Riot and print. Perfect. <laughs> Great. Um, one of the next things I have on the agenda is actually something that I saw you post first, and then it made its way around the bookish internet as these things do. Um, but I knew that you had seen it. So I thought I would loop it in. Um, former President Barack Obama, still the president of my heart, uh, mm -hmm. posted 
his most recent reading list. This is a thing that he does relatively frequently. We've talked about them on a lot of, Jeff and I have talked about them on a lot of shows. Um, it's always interesting to see sort of what he's been reading, but um, especially now that he's not in office, he's issuing his opinions about the things that he's reading a little bit more freely rather than just posing for a photo with a stack of books and letting the list come out. Um, so uh, I thought that maybe we could just take a look at these. I'm not really familiar with any of the titles. Um, but there's an interesting sort of through line. Um, the first one that he talks about is Future Face, A Family Mystery, An Epic Quest, and The Secret to Belonging by Alex Wagner. Um, and he says, I once wrote a book on my own search for identity. So I was curious to see what Alex, daughter of a Burmese mother and Iowan Irish Catholic father, discovered during her own. What she came up with is a thoughtful, beautiful meditation on what makes us who we are, the search for harmony between our own individual identities and the values and ideals that bind us together as Americans. So basically, a memoir. Mm-hmm. Then you have The New Geography of Jobs by Enrico Moretti, which uh, he notes is six years old, but is timely about uh, different cities and regions and how they're making a changing economy work for them, what policymakers can learn. Then you've got Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick Deenan. Then he notes, I don't agree with most of the author's conclusions, but the book offers cogent insights into the loss of meaning and community that many in the West feel. There's a piece he references from The Atlantic and then um, In the Shadow of Statues, A White Southerner Confronts History by Mitch Landrew, followed by Truth Decay, an initial exploration of the diminishing role of facts and analysis in American public life. And I feel like you save that one for last because it's really quite pointed about uh, maybe where we are in the current political moment Mm -hmm. and what's going on with books and I have a, now I'm that guy at all of the author events that has a two-part question. So my first one is when a list comes out like this from a big public figure, do you guys see increased sales or inquiry about these particular titles in the store? Like I saw this thing get posted all over the bookish internet, but I wonder among sort of, you know, like civilian readers, um, how widely or not widely you see these things be distributed or affect sales. Not typically affecting sales. Um, We've had some people, especially the more, I don't want to say commercial, but I guess I'm saying the same thing by saying the less academic books. Mm-hmm. So like Future Face and Why Liberalism Failed and In the Shadow of Statues. Um, I think we've had a couple of customers come in and say this is where they heard about the book. Oh, and we've definitely seen a couple more sales that, you know, not every reader is someone like me that will identify like I'm buying this and this is where I heard about it. And this is what I feel about it. Like most people just come up to the counter by the Wicked Leaf, which is fine. People just um, buy their books without comment. Listen, different <laughs> strokes for different folks. I, um, so we see a little bit, but definitely not at the same level as um, still like mainstream media attention on books. Um, increasingly at our store, at least, like mentions on podcasts actually drive sales on books, which is really interesting hmm. and probably a really good sign for Book Riot, which has so many podcasts. <laughs> Here's hoping. Um, and for us, like, NPR nationally and our local NPR affiliates like that really drive sales too, which totally fulfills the stereotype of someone that shops at an independent bookstore. <laughs> um, so you mentioned in the previous segment that you and Emily, uh, your co-owner Emily Murtaugh had been intentional from the very beginning about 
letting print have a political perspective and not being apolitical. Um, and that's something that like you and I have been friends for a million years. And it's something that we've talked about in respect of both of our jobs that Book Riot has also intentionally been not apolitical, has always had a, a voice and a perspective. Um, it's a little easier to do on the internet, I think. Like it's less surprising to folks that a literary website might have a perspective like that. But the way that y'all have approached it is not totally uncommon, but not widely seen, I think, in independent bookstores. It seems to me that maybe just in the last couple of years, did that start to be a discussion that bookstore owners were having where previously it was like, well, you want to serve every customer in your community. Um, so you put all the books on the shelf that you can in your one one hundredth of a percent of, of book space. Yeah. Um, how have you navigated that? It's been especially charged politically the last couple of years. So as you guys started out, was that part of the messaging of print? Um, have there been any bumpy spots? How, how has the community responded to, like, to the perspective you guys have taken and to things like, you know, donating a percentage of sales on certain days to the ACLU or, um, was it ta Coates's book that you donated to, uh, yes, we donated to the African-American teaching fellows right in Charlottesville. Um, so tell yeah. me some about that, about being a bookstore that has a political perspective. So for, for us, and I have the perspective of someone that has only worked at, you know, the bookstore I own now with Emily and then one prior group of bookstores before that. So I, I, Certainly can't pretend to speak for all independent bookstores, but um, it's been an incredibly good move for us on a day that, say, we donate the, a percentage of our sales to the main branch of the ACLU was one of our biggest days in the year and a half that we've been open. Um, our events that focus on social justice and progressive causes have been the largest events we've had in the store. Uh, so that's been really, really encouraging. And it wasn't a hard decision. I, you know, I'm not going to say that we labored over it. It was both of our sense of a sense of what we wanted the store to be. And it's not, it's worth noting that Portland, which is a relatively small city that we're in, uh, we are the fourth independent bookstore to open in the city. Even if we're geographically kind of apart from where the other stores are, we're all pulling from a lot of the same customer base. And I thought that having we thought that having a point of view would be a good way to distinguish ourselves. And like you said, it's probably easier on the Internet, like all those complaints about our point of view and stuff like that have come on the Internet. It's not as though we've had confrontations in the store. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and and it's reflective of our community as well. Um, Portland is is pretty left leaning. So we knew that what we were doing was something that would appeal to a lot of the folks that lived in town. I think I imagined that like at some point there would have been someone in the store angry about something. Um, so I'm, yeah, I guess I'm glossing over it. Like occasionally there people are, but like, what can you do? It, it's something that I think I don't want to speak out of turn. I don't know if explicitly or implicitly anyone at book riot has done, but at that point, it's someone that will say, you know, there's other independent bookstores in town. If you don't like what we're doing, then there are other places you oh, can yeah. go. Yeah. For um, for a long time, we've said some variation of like, sorry to lose you as a reader. <laughs> so I think that's something that we're comfortable with doing. And I'm okay with it, especially because the store is doing well. But like as a person in the world, it's the approach we want to take anyway. But to go into like how you led into the question about people wanting to appeal to their entire community. 
I think like the capitalist flip side of that is there are a lot of bookstores that are worried that any view they don't represent is a lost sale. Mm-hmm. And that lost sale in a world of very thin margins might be the thing that makes or breaks them. Um, I feel like the flip side of that is we are increasing our sales and the connection with our customers and our ability to bring in events so much by having a point of view. And I've, I've long been a person with the belief that like, as a business, as an artist, however you want to define yourself, there's no such thing as being apolitical right. as much as you'd like to. Like saying you're apolitical is like maybe you're a centrist, I guess, but you're not you're taking a political view, even if you're trying to argue that. Yeah. And books and reading have always been inherently political. Um, I think people make the choice to pretend that it hasn't always been that way sometimes or just to ignore it. Um, But that's the experience that we've had aligns pretty closely with what you're describing that when Book Riot really first started kind of allowing ourselves to have teeth, I guess, about the perspectives that we had. And early on, it was discussing diversity and inclusivity issues um, and feminism and, you know, the broader scope of social justice. And in the last couple of years, since the 2016 election, it's been pretty pointedly political. There's probably political content every single day that ties into what's happening in the political world and how that can be related to or understood through books and reading is the people who didn't like it go away. And that's fine. Those are lost for us. Those are lost page views. Um, Mm -hmm. But the people who do align and do agree or who are open to it feel safer and more comfortable in that space. And there are a lot of those people that haven't felt safe and comfortable and welcome in many spaces online. And so creating that space for them, I think is bigger and more valuable than the readership we would have if we were casting about trying to make everybody happy or try not to rock the boat at all. You can't make everybody happy, but you can work really hard to not rock the boat. And that's just like so boring. And Uh, I think that that translates to the world of books too. Like I totally get why someone, if like looking at what some of the best sellers are on a site like Amazon, a site that also chooses to like front and center these books. And if you're seeing like Milo Yiannopoulos and right. Bill O'Reilly and seeing their faces on the cover of books in a window or face out in a store or something like that, like I wouldn't feel comfortable shopping at that store necessarily. It certainly doesn't make it feel like an inviting place if, you know, mm-hmm. given what those people have said about other people in the world. Yeah. That's a great way to phrase it. Um, I'm going to do our next sponsor and then we will just keep going. So our next sponsor this week is Remind Me Again What Happened by Joanna Luloff. Uh, This synopsis that I have opens with a quote, there is a smudge where my memory is supposed to be. In Remind Me Again What Happened, Joanna Luloff's outstanding debut novel, Claire, a journalist who is suffering from severe memory loss as the result of a rare disease she caught while in India, turns to her husband, Charlie, and their best friend, Rachel, for help as she tries to piece together the facts of her life. And as she combs through the forgotten fragments, all of their secrets begin to spill out. Not just hers, but Charlie's and Rachel's as well. So this is a debut from a promising new author. It's a layered literary work told from alternating points of view. Man, that's a thing I love. Uh, There's an enticing mystery at the heart of the novel, so readers will be driven to keep reading as Claire tries to piece her life back together and figure out what Charlie and Rachel have been up to. Uh, The author, Joanna Luloff, is obsessed with memory, and she says, perhaps the fixation began when my mother survived a sudden, seemingly 
the undiagnosable fever that made her brain swell and scar and transform itself. She returned from the hospital the same in some ways, but changed in others. And that was such a formative experience that she's been thinking about it and exploring it in her own fiction. There are snapshot photos throughout the novel and it sounds very appealing. There's a great blurb from, uh, is it Dan Shan or Sean? Do you know how to pronounce that? I should have asked this question before we got going. I can offer no help. All right. Well, I'm just going to roll on then. (laughs) If this sounds good to you, it's out from Algonquin Books. It's called, again, Remind Me Again What Happened by Joanna Luloff. We'll have a link to it in the show notes, or you can find it wherever books are sold. I bet the folks at print would be happy to sell it to you. We would love to sell you. (laughs) Let me speak to your listeners. We would love to sell you whatever books you would like to get. Printbookstore.com. Thank you. (laughs) Do you want to talk about audiobooks? Yeah, let's talk about audiobooks. There were uh, there were big numbers out this week, and I'm an audiobooks listener. I only just learned last week that you're an audiobooks listener. Yeah, I have been like kind of fits and starts with audiobooks because so much of my time traveling and doing chores in my earbuds, I have podcasts on. Mm. Um, but we just started selling, uh, through print, um, digital audiobooks, which has been a game changer since I don't have to, to mess with CDs or anything <laughs> like that, anymore. which I know for people that have used audible, like sounds like saying, I don't have to use cassette tapes anymore, but still. Yeah. I have those moments every time that I'm looking at like Edelweiss and I come across a listing for an audio, like a physical audiobook, and it's approximately approximately $9 million. And it's just like, why? And 30 CDs. Right. right. Like, Oh, remember how we used to live. Um, so the audiobook, what is it? The audiobooks publish audiobook publishers association came out with new numbers this week in partnership with Edison research. We've been talking for the last couple of years on this show and in publishing in a broader sense about the audiobooks boom, that audiobooks are just growing rapidly. I think it's the fastest growing segment um, in publishing. And in 2017, they generated $2.8 billion in the US, which is an increase of 22.7% over 2016. That's just huge, um, mm-hmm. with a corresponding 21.5% increase in units. And this is continuing a six-year trend of double-digit year-over-year growth for audiobooks. And um, they found that audiobook listeners consume books in all formats, with 83% of frequent listeners having read a hardcover or paperback also in the last year, and 79% having read an ebook, and that audiobook listeners read or listened to an average of 15 books in the last year, which that seems pretty Hi to me. I think the Pew Center studies that come out usually consider anyone who reads 10 or 12 books a year to be a heavy reader. So 15 Mm -hmm. um, sounds pretty high. But I'm wondering, as somebody who owns a a bookstore that traffics in mostly print books, um, if there's anything particular about this trend that, that you're seeing or just general interest in audiobook listening. Yeah, I mean, the... Bottom fell out, I feel like, years ago at independent bookstores, but probably at bookstores and even online booksellers uh, for physical audiobooks, which makes sense for the reasons you were saying. They were expensive and tons of CDs because you're only getting about an hour of audio on each one and, you know, just a huge all kinds of problems with them. But uh, digital audiobooks have been 
great. It's a, I think it's a great way to consume books. Like you said, I'm a, I'm an audiobook listener too. And it's, I feel like the same argument that was being made about, um, like eBooks years ago when, when not everyone, but some people thought that by 2018, the physical book would be dead. <laughs> I remember those headlines <laughs> oh, yep. from a decade ago. Um, those like very and, sad book expo years for a little while. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's that idea that someone buying or consuming a book as an audiobook means a lost sale of a physical book. And that's something that I think is really encouraging about this data that came out from the AAA is that every a majority of people that are consuming audiobooks are also consuming books in other formats. Not to mention that you can buy audiobooks, digital audiobooks through many independent bookstores now, right? Yeah, there's an outfit called Libro FM that just started that has a great app that I think is comparable to like the Audible app. And it's the same deal. You can buy books a la carte or you can pay $15 a month um, and you get an audiobook out of that and then a discount on any other ones you buy. Um, and they're also great in terms of getting us at independent bookstores, customers, and getting people to switch over, um, you can convert up to two Audible credits to Libro credits if you huh. switch over. So two, if you had two free books with audio with Audible, you can get two free books at Libro, um, which is also the time that I say uh, Libro.fm slash print bookstore <laughs> is our site. But pre whatever your independent bookstore is, it's Libro.fm slash, you know, whatever they've chosen as their URL. Um, and it was great for us. We started selling a lot of audiobooks when uh, Fire and Fury came out, the oh, Michael yeah. Wolf book, um, because it had a stock issue. They didn't print enough books. So we got some from the first shipment, and then it was unavailable as a physical book. Basically, every, you know, you couldn't mm -hmm. get it online. You could get it I got it on audio chains. for that same reason. Yeah. Yeah. And then we started selling it on audio to people that were curious about what Michael Wolf had to say. And it's been a great way to, to, help customers get books to customers when we're having some sort of stock issue. And I think probably now that eBooks have been a thing long enough and people are pretty comfortable with smartphones and using digital apps to do stuff, I would imagine the conversion process there is less complicated than maybe five or seven years ago. It was trying to talk to customers in a bookstore about down, like downloading the Kobo app to read eBooks. Mm, yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, related to audiobooks, this was just a fun study that came out this week um, that was conducted by UCL uh, in conjunction with Audible to measure the physical reactions that people had um, listening to an audiobook or watching video depictions of scenes from the book. Uh, this was only 102 participants. Um, they were age between 18 and 67. So all of the usual caveats about a small sample size apply. We won't like fully go into methodology corner here, uh, but these folks were exposed to scenes from A Game of Thrones, The Girl on the Train, and Great Expectations. The scenes, which really interesting choices there. Um, the scenes were chosen based on their emotional intensity and for having minimal differences between the audio and video adaptations. Um, oh, and it also included Silence of the Lambs. So for Silence of the Lambs, participants were shown or played Clarice's interview with Hannibal Lecter. Uh, they could see sections from Pride and Prejudice, where Mr. Darcy proposes to Elizabeth Bennet. Uh, there was one from The Hound of the Baskervilles, where they heard and saw the first description of the beast. And as the participants watched or listened, the researchers measured their heart rate and electrodermal activity. 
And once they were done, they quizzed them about their conscious responses to the clips. And the big upshot here is that while the participants reported that the videos were more engaging than the audiobooks by about 15% on average, their physiological responses told a different story. People's heart rates were higher by about two beats a minute, and their body temperatures were raised by roughly two degrees when listening to audiobooks instead. So the resulting paper, if you want to Google it or go into like JSTOR, is measuring narrative engagement. The heart tells the story, and they're essentially just kind of laying out a case that listening to an audiobook will get a bigger emotional response from up from a human than seeing that same scene happen on screen. And I have nothing but anecdata to share about this, but I have cried listening to more audiobooks in the last couple of years than I have like more frequently than I've cried watching TV or movies. Um, and I, we hear about it from people like I was driving along and I was listening to this thing and then it was a five alarm snot bomb. (laughs) And, uh, it, this feels true to me. I can't, uh, maybe just because it resonates with my experience. Um, but I'm recalling, I think I've told the story on the show several times. Like my first really salient audiobook experience was listening to Brian Cranston read The Things They Carried, which I think was an Audible exclusive a couple of years ago. And I had to like pull over by the side of the road because I was crying. And there's a section in Amy Poehler's memoir where they loop in audio of her and... Um, her as Leslie Nope and Ben Wyatt getting married on Parks and Rec. And I was like, I'm just driving along, listening to them say, I like you and I love you. And I'm crying now. And we hear from Book Riot people all the time um, that an audiobook made them cry. So I just thought this was interesting. That's all I have to say about it. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. It's, <laughs> it fits with that idea of like, you know, what's scarier than hearing a noise at your house in the middle of the night, right? Oh, like right. What, all you've got is this audio input and then your brain is doing all the rest <laughs> of the work. And um, I am sure that at least for me, like I can picture stuff that is probably worse than what's being depicted on screen <laughs> for, for some of those scenes. Oh, our brains are the scariest places. Yeah, it reminds <laughs> me of, um, I think it came out years ago, but Peter Mendelssohn had a book called What We See When We Read. Oh, yeah. Which was what about- book. Yeah, yeah, about how when we read, our our brains fill in all these spaces, um, the to fill in the blanks basically, and, and engage our imaginations. And I feel like a lot of those same muscles are probably being engaged when you're listening to something rather than than seeing it on the screen. And I'm so glad you reminded me that that book exists in the world. I remember it being such a like mind bender because I'm a really verbal person, as you know, because I talk to you all the time, um, mm-hmm. and not super visual. And I remember reading that book and looking at sort of the illustrations that he lays out alongside the principles that he's discussing about what is happening in our brains. And it's not like, we're not talking about like cognitive science here. We're talking about kind of a theory that he has about what's going on. Like how do, what happens between reading a description of a woman with brown hair in a field of sunflowers and getting an image in our heads of what that woman looks like and what the flowers smell like and all that stuff. Um, It's just fascinating how he does it. The book is really wonderful. I'll, I'll try to drop a link in the show notes, but that's what we see when we read by Peter Mendelssohn. That's a good memory. It's like you sell books for a living. It's like I sell books for a living. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, I had asked some of our staff, you know, in advance of the show, if there were any questions that they had for somebody who owns an independent bookstore, anything that they thought would be fun um, to hear you talk about, if you don't mind being on the hot seat a little bit more, but I thought I would just do our last. I was born in the hot seat. (laughs) (laughs) Show title. Um, I'm going to do our last sponsor and then we'll just get into it. So our final sponsor this week is The Great Courses Plus. We love it when we learn something new. You guys know that I love nothing more than to be able to like, hey, did you know? Did you know? And The Great Courses Plus makes it really easy. The Great Courses Plus is the best way to discover new interests and pick up new hobbies with fascinating insights from leading professors and experts. With The Great Courses Plus, you get unlimited access to thousands of lectures in virtually any category, like history, science, literature, cooking, photography, and more. You can watch or listen anywhere, anytime with The Great Courses Plus app. You will love their course, Life Lessons from the Great Books. Um, I checked it out this week. There are, like now I will say, the great books here are like the things that are canonical, going back to like the Odyssey. And this really is like watching, uh, you are watching a lecture from a college professor, essentially. They're standing in front of a podium and they're talking to you about like one great lesson that comes out of each one of these great works. Um, The one that I clicked on, Uh, when I was perusing was life lessons from the journals of Lewis and Clark, all about being what it is to be adventurous um, and to explore. And that was just one example, but I would never have guessed that that was where it was going to go in a lecture about the journals of Lewis and Clark. Um, It was really interesting. I just love this, that you have access to tons of information and experts who are passionate and super knowledgeable about their subjects. I've also watched a few of the cooking ones because I like to cook um, and learning from people who really know their subject matter is super satisfying. So if this sounds good to you, you can give it a shot because The Great Courses Plus is giving a special limited time offer to our listeners. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash book riot and you'll get a full month to enjoy all of the great courses plus lectures for free you start your free month today at the great slash book riot get your nerd on again that's the great courses slash book riot all right josh born in the hot seat just opened a beer so oh well you got to catch up with me i've been whiskey lemonading from you know well, did i say a beer i meant my second beer. <laughs> This is how you podcast after dark, mm-hmm. as is right and proper. Um, I guess we could also tell our listeners that in addition to owning a bookstore, you've written a couple of books about beer and frequently still write about beer and the outdoors in Maine. Yeah, yeah. My my first two books, one was called Maine Beer and is about the history of the brewing industry in Maine. Um, the second one is a handbook to stouts and porters. Um, and then I've written a couple books about the Maine outdoors, one about like summer outdoors activities and one about skiing. And what are you drinking tonight? Um, I am drinking the blah, blah, blah IPA from 21st <laughs> Amendment Brewery. Excellent. All right. So the first question from our staff is, is there a surprise bestseller of the year or some book that's really moving, at least at print, that you weren't necessarily expecting to be a big seller? Well, for better or worse, I do have access to our inventory system from home. So I looked this up while we were recording. 
Um, and by far our bestseller, which was kind of a surprise, is a book called It, it Occurs to Me That I Am America, uh, which is a collection of short stories from 30 authors, including Alice Walker and Richard Russo and Walter Mosley, um, and artwork from Art Spiegelman and Ross Chast mm. and Marilyn Minter and Eric Fischel. Um, and it's short stories that are fiction but cover political and social and cultural issues. It was released in January, uh, just on the one-year anniversary of Trump's inauguration. Um, and it's a, this beautiful, slightly oversized hardcover that uses fiction to examine the world that we live in now. Um it's a it's a great book and we had a event for it a launch event for it which I'm sure helped push it up our bestseller list but it just has continued to move. That's super interesting and there's a great illustration of the differences between like the Amazon bestseller list and what's going on in a local independent bookstore. Yeah, yeah, I think that you know like when Sean Spicer's book comes out whatever you think about him it'll be on the front page of Amazon because it'll be a bestseller and you will not find it anywhere in your print. <laughs> You're not going to like build a big motorized podium for him to do his events. If we could get Melissa McCarthy <laughs> in the store, then absolutely. But um, I'll no, fly I don't... for that one. Perfect. Uh, and uh, along those same lines, um, on the kind of political side of things, uh, Day in the Life of Marlon Bundo, the <laughs> book that um, John Oliver's yeah. show published, has also been an incredibly big seller. That's very heartening. I'm glad to hear that one. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that having a political perspective has helped with getting author events and maybe getting the community into the store. Um, one of our staff members recently left New York and was wondering about the relative ease or difficulty of booking authors, like booking, you know, big name authors into an indie store that's not in New York or Boston or LA. Um, would you, you guys get great events at print. So I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about how that works. Yeah, we're on pace for about a hundred events a year. So we do a lot. Um, and we do get really great authors. Um, Richard Russo is, is involved with the store heavily. So we have him a lot. And also he does in conversations with authors, which is a nice kind of way to, to draw people up to Maine. Um, but a lot like anything else, a lot of it comes down to the pitch that we can make to the publisher. Um, although we are above Boston, which is where a lot of tours often end when they're going up to the East Coast, we're only 90 minutes away. And Portland is a really cool city. It's like artistically and culturally and especially around food is a really great place to visit. We have a lot of authors up here as well. And those are all, way, all things that we can put in the pitch to publicists to say, this is why you should send your author here. Um, and we developed a good reputation and like on the kind of wonkier business side also have are able to pull good crowds and have decent sell through in terms of what we have at the store, which is what um, a lot of publishers really want to see. We report to the New York Times bestseller list, which is really important to a lot of publishers. So they know that it, whatever sales we have in our store will be counted in whatever weird <laughs> arcane secret process no the Times knows. uses. No one knows. This is true to figure out what order the times list is in. So that helps as well. Yeah. We did a whole annotated episode about uh, that young adult author who gamed the mm -hmm, New York Times mm -hmm. bestseller list and how like the descriptions of how the list works actually don't tell you anything about how the list works. Yeah. By design. Um, right. Um, does 
do the books that you're championing in the store or the hand selling that you do, does that tie in at all to being able to get author events or does it go the other way where like, you know, an author is coming. And so then you might be more proactively trying to get people interested in that book. It, it kind of goes both ways. Like looking at our bestseller list, it's very easy to see which authors we've had events with because those are often the bestsellers in the store. Um, but the flip side of that is if we are really passionate about an author, that means that we're more likely to have them come for an event. Um, we're having Lauren Groff this July, um, which largely comes from my partner Emily's like huge devotion to her <laughs> books since day one and her huge fandom. Um, and we had Ada Calhoun for Wedding Toast I'll Never Give, which you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. um, because I was such a huge fan and champion of that book. Such so a good it's, book. It's something that publishers pay attention to if they see that someone is talking about a book a lot. And I'm lucky enough to have a big enough profile that like maybe I move the needle a little bit in terms of selling books. <laughs> you at can least enough that. To, yeah, at least enough to, to encourage um, encourage publishers think that sending a, a author to our store is worthwhile. And Emily as well. We've both been selling books for a decade plus and kind of know what we're talking about and know how to speak to, to readers and and promote the books that we love. What are you loving right now and hand selling a lot of? So I, I just took a picture today, speaking of social media, I like <laughs> took a picture to post of my staff fix shelf at the store. Um, and Good Sex by Jennifer Graham, which is a book about like sexuality and meditation is really good. We've been selling a huge number of that. And it's the first book that actually made me uh, stick to meditating. Which I'm I've so happy. Of for, <laughs> for so long. Yeah, it's such a good, like it's got really good advice about sex and relationships and stuff like that, but also as a book about meditation, it's really, really good. Um, Finally, Jennifer, I'm not the only person on this podcast talking about meditation. <laughs> I'm here for you. I get your back. Um, uh, Jennifer Gavon has a poetry collection called Girl with Death Mask, which is really, really good. Um, there's an older book by Jessica Hopper called uh, First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic, which is her criticism over years writing about music, which is really, really good. Um, those are the things that I've kind of been most behind recently. Awesome. Nice variety there. Thanks. Um, and are you seeing any particular titles moving right now related to people's maybe renewed interest in politics or given that the store has had a political perspective from the get-go has that just been part of it because we should note you opened the store what the day before it was right before thanksgiving of 2016 so yeah the like basically prince entire life has lived in this political moment yeah, I mean, we inaugurated the store. The fixtures were put in, and the books started arriving the day after the election. <sighs> and that was also when we inaugurated our first bottle of whiskey in the office <laughs> of the store and had a toast and said, you know, it's important that we have a viewpoint. And if that ends up hurting the store, then at least we did something that we could feel good about. And, you know, thank God it has ended up being to the store's benefit. But either way, like in in the world we live in now, I couldn't stand being like milk toast and just going along when we have a platform to not only talk about our own views, but promote authors um, and promote books that have different viewpoints. Um, Hopefully. Which doesn't really answer your question. It does. I would say I have an answer to your question too. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We'll carry on. Um, 
the biggest sales bumps, kind of surprisingly, have not been for newer books about politics, which have such a short shelf life. Like there was a huge bump for Fire and Fury when it came out. Same with James Comey's book that people were really interested for like a week and a half. <laughs> and no one was interested anymore because a thousand news stories are broken right. and something else is on fire and people are on to the next thing. Um, but a, the Handmaid's Tale, we've yeah. sold incredibly well since we opened. 1984, um, Hannah Arendt's book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, mm-hmm. we've sold really well. And then, like, nerdy inside fact about Josh is the fact that since I was a major uh, poli-sci major in college, I've carried around a pocket constitution. And the pocket constitutions we sell in the store have been one of our bestsellers. Oh, that just warms my heart. <laughs> Doing my part. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully, you know, the Book Riot audience here, I think, is a nice, fuzzy, warm space for these perspectives. And maybe we can get you some happier internet comments to balance out (laughs) Um, some of the ones that have been happening in your coverage of Me Too. Um, But I'm always happy to have book to know that booksellers are out there sort of fighting those same battles that we're fighting in the ways that we cover books and uh, think seriously. I think it's very similar to how we think seriously about how we use the sites platform and the podcasts platforms to recommend books to people and um, respecting the seriousness of what that attention means and the importance of people placing their trust in you for, um, for, for that kind of advice. It's what ideas they're going to put in their brains. Uh, It's really pretty amazing when I think about it that we get to talk about ideas and books that convey those ideas. Um, So thank you for the work that you're doing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes I just need to get mushy about books for a second. Um, I think that's our show this week. Thank you, Josh, so much for being on here with me. Of course, folks can find print at printbookstore.com, or if you're very wisely making a trip up to Portland, Maine this summer, you can hop in. But where can our listeners find you on the internet? So I am um, on Twitter still for some reason at uh, at J Christie. So first initial, last name, um, and J Christie seven on Instagram. Um, and then print bookstore on Twitter, uh, facebook.com slash print bookstore for our Facebook page and then print dot bookstore for our Instagram page. Wonderful. Uh, thank you to our sponsors, Harry's trees by John Cohen, me, myself and them remind me again, what happened and the great courses plus don't forget to get your free month of the great Port courses plus by going to the great slash book riot. If you have thoughts or questions for us here at the show, you can shoot those to podcast at bookriot.com. You can find me on Twitter, which I try to stay off of mostly at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. And if you would like to take a minute to rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts, that makes it easier for other people looking to nerd out about books and reading to find their way to us. So that's it. We'll talk to y'all soon. Thanks.